we are sorry to announce that the 11.35 East Midlands trains service to Newark Northgate has been cancelled. Ministers have been holding crisis talks aimed at limiting the damage caused by the collapse of the construction giant Carillion, which also provided services for schools, prisons and hospitals. Katie Rickett is in Greater Manchester. From the failures of Carillion to Southern Rail, the door is closing on privatisation and outsourcing. Public ownership is back on the agenda. Opinion polls show high levels of support for taking all kinds of things back into public hands, from the railways to water to energy, and the Labour Party is committed to a vast expansion of public ownership. We're going to renationalise the railways. We're also going to bring water and Royal Mail back into public ownership and democratic control. But if privatisation has failed, what kind of public ownership should replace it? As the critics of nationalisation are quick to say, British Rail wasn't that great. British Rail intend to maintain their standards. But now for the good news. <laughs> so, if public ownership is popular but we don't want a return to the 70s, what should be done differently this time? If these services were nationalised, would the state even know how to run them? And are there other ways of putting them back in public hands? It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week we're diving into public ownership 2.0. So, I want to start this episode with a tweet from listener Carwin, who tweeted at Weekly Econ Pod to say, Hi guys, firstly, love the podcast. Week on week, I find myself nodding along to various problems with our economy, but can we have an episode that looks at what can be or is being done to transition us towards a better economic model? I feel you, Carwin. So, you asked for it, and we're here to record exactly that sort of episode on Valentine's Day of all days. Not to make you feel guilty, though, what could be more romantic than discussing democratic public ownership? The British public clearly have a lot of love for the idea. Here's a quick rundown of the stats. So, 83% of people want to own the water companies, 77% want public ownership of energy, 76% want the railways in public ownership, 65% want to get the Royal Mail back in public hands, and Piers Morgan gets publicly owned on Twitter 365 days of the year. I couldn't have a better group of people to help me figure out what public ownership could actually look like in practice, the pros and cons, and whether Piers Morgan should start his own range of soggy sandwiches. First up is founder and director of the We Own It campaign, Kat Hobbs. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Lovely to have Hello. you. Happy Valentine's Day, Kat. You too. <laughs> Thanks for being here with me. Hilary Wainwright is the co-editor of Red Pepper magazine and research director of the New Politics Project of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. Welcome, Hilary. Hi, Isha. Happy to be here. Thanks. Lovely to have you. And last but not least, Sahil Dutter is lecturer in political economy at Goldsmiths University with a particular interest in management and governance. Hello. Hello. Lovely nice to, to be have here. You. Oh, we said it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Lovely to be here. Nice to have you. Okay, great. Cool. <laughs> Nailing it. This is so smooth. Right. So we'll start by turning back the clock. So some of the public institutions that were set up after the Second World War were amazingly popular, especially the NHS, and still are. But there were problems with nationalisation too, of course. So, Hilary, what sort of trouble did these institutions run into? Well, I think the contrast of the NHS is, is helpful because... The, the point about the NHS is right from the beginning in Nye Bevan's vision and in the whole kind of way it was built, there was a commitment to make a health service for the people. And it was actually based on a model 
that was invented by the people, the people of Trevega in in South Wales, where Nybevan came from. So there was a kind of both a democratic element and a public purpose element, and the two are very closely connected. Whereas the nationalised industries, they were brought into public ownership in a in a slightly different way, more like for the good of the economy. I mean, it was partly the legacy of the war. That meant that there wasn't the idea of the public, the public purpose, even really fully built into their goals. And in a way, that meant that when it, they came to be run and managed, actually, it, it wasn't considered particularly relevant to involve the public, whether the public was understood as the users and the communities affected, like the mining communities uh, or the passengers of the uh, of the railways, nor to involve the the, the workers who were also users, mm. and in a way who were were the front line of. Of, of relationships with the users. So it was a lack of democracy linked to the lack of a clear public purpose as distinct from market purpose. So in that basic foundation, you see some of the problems that we've then experienced uh, with the railways prior to, to, to privatisation. Yeah, I think I, that's quite reflective of, I think, of the moment when that kind of big nationalisation drive happened was there... Coming out of the war, there was this enormous faith that the state could centrally um, manage and direct expertise. Um, knowing the success that they had with things like operations research, with these kind of early forms of management science that they used to plan the war effort, the mm. state thought that they could use those same kind of techniques and transfer them over to the civilian sector. Um, but that did mean a very kind of top-down, expert-led rationalism that maybe did kind of preclude any kind of democratic or kind of bottom-up input into it. But it was reflective of a time when there was real faith in the idea that you could re really, like, plan and manage um, centrally. And I think that reflected in the way things like steel, um, the steel industry was nationalised, and really a, a central kind of cadre of managers came to, came to govern in a way that was very different to what we might turn to now. So... I think what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the way in which that things were nationalised in the past was to an extent always around serving kind of business and market interests rather than the public good and the NHS was kind of an exception to that rule. Is that right? Is that reductive? Well, I think that's part of it. But I think there was also an equation of socialism with state planning so mm -hmm. there wasn't really, although I think they're different traditions, and I think Nybevan represented a maybe more democratic bottom-up tradition in some regard, but there was that sort of belief that, that, that came from the Fabians, particularly, you know, been to the Soviet Union and felt it was a wonderful model of, you know, planning. It was about rational planning. The mm. idea that the people had the knowledge or capacity to, to run a service was complete anathema. In fact, Stafford Cripps, a key figure at that time, said no way could the workers um, actually know how to run an industry. But yet workers had played a crucial part in the production levels and so on necessary for the war effort. So they were, workers in the unions were quite confident that they could play an important part in public management. They prepared plans and so on. But these were completely dismissed. So it was a little bit I'd add to your point that it was also to do with how socialism was conceived at that time. It was mm -hmm. conceived as mainly 
about the state and about planning and not really about uh, economic democracy or workers' democracy or anything that really involved the public, the people, the users, the citizens. Mm. Mm. I think it's right that we can make our public services much more democratic, much more accountable, but I don't think we should underestimate the extent of the achievement of the post-war public services mm. that, that were created. I mean, it was unprecedented and it's made a huge difference to people's lives, not just the creation of the NHS, but also, you know, the railway, the water companies, they were run uh, for the benefit of the public. Yes, they could have been better, but it was a real achievement. You know, yeah. those, those public services mm. were a real achievement. And I think, you know, British Rail, for example, was deliberately underinvested in by the government mm. as part of a, you know, a strategy by which they could then sell it off, mm -hmm. you know, and tell a, tell a negative story about it. You know, like as, as Chomsky <laughs> says, you know, exactly. You know, you underinvest in public services, then you tell a, a negative story about the public sector that just isn't true, um, and then you use that as an excuse to sell it off. Okay, so let's jump forward from the Second World War to 1979 and the election of Margaret Thatcher. Um, since then, we've had successive governments promising to reform public services and cut bureaucracy, and a new term that's entered the lexicon is new public management. So uh, in a nutshell, what does that mean? Okay, a slightly long nutshell, okay, um, but not too long, nutshell. I promise. Okay. Um, it was a term that was kind of popularised within academia, so semi-popularised, um, <laughs> in the early 90s by critics of what had happened over the last kind of 15 years and the last 10 years over the Thatcherite period in particular to describe a way of running public services, how they would be financed, how they would be evaluated, how workers in the public sector would be evaluated in a manner akin to the private sector. Um, mm. So the idea was that you could try and drive efficiency in the public sector if only we'd run you know, the NHS and schools like we do uh, or in a manner similar to private sector companies. So that meant doing things like performance-related pay um, or a culture of audit and continual assessment, um, outsourcing, the creation of quangos. What um, are quangos? Quangos, these, these kinds of, um, kind of semi-public regulatory bodies mm -hmm. that would then evaluate how a industry, a public industry or a semi-privatised industry was, was coping. And, mm -hmm. and things, creation of internal markets and outsourcing, so that you'd have things which are notionally publicly owned, but run in a manner similar to the private sector. Um, and so this is something that was criticised and, and coined as new public management. The idea was that it would help to drive efficiency and squeeze costs um, and help to kind of, with that pairing back of the state that the Thatcherite settlement was about, as it happened, it cost a lot more. Um, so it didn't achieve its stated aims it did not achieve its stated aims but what it what it has done and i think this is something we all experience especially whether you work in the public sector or whether you use public services you're overwhelmed by this experience of bureaucracy and mm -hmm. um, we're constantly filling out forms yeah. or constantly if you have a uh, i i went to a and e recently and soon afterwards was asked was texted to say can i rate my service or how was yeah. my experience in the in the in the hospital on a scale of one to four mm -hmm. and that's a very kind of new public management idea that you could try and create these kind of quantitative ideas of just the service you've just experienced as a as a kind of consumer mm. interesting right we're going to circle back to that for now uh, we've covered some of the history i want to have a quick chat about how public ownership might work in the future in practice so cat people often talk about nationalization but you talk about public ownership what is the difference is there one yeah so we've always been really clear that we talk about public ownership because 
it's not just about the national level of the state. It's also about the regional and local levels. Um, and also nationalisation can feel like a word that is associated with the past. And actually, you know, we don't want to renationalise. We don't want to go back anywhere, although we want to build on, on the successes of the past, we want to go forward. So mm. we talk about public ownership to really make that clear. Okay, um, and public ownership is? Public ownership is running public services for the benefit of the public. So it means that we get the profit, profit comes back to the service and is reinvested in making it better, and we get a say, so services are accountable and, and responsive to us. Okay, so if we take some areas where there's the most support for public ownership, so water, energy, rail and mail, could the government actually afford to buy them all and how would it work? Yeah, so we definitely can. In some areas, it's a case of contracts coming to an end. So in the case of outsourcing or rail franchises, those are contracts. When we come to the end of the contract, the government can bring it in-house and they don't need to pay anything for that. So that's really great. Of course, it's more complicated in terms of buying trains, but, you know, the, the big picture is we need to bring contracts in-house. When it comes to uh, taking back or buying back assets, so, for example, the water companies, there is potentially a cost associated with that. Arguably, though, it's about getting something that is of value to the public, and that's an asset that will, you know, that will pay off, essentially. And so depending what price you pay that will pay for itself over a number of years. Because actually, when we have services in, in public ownership, we save money on shareholder profits. Mm. We save money on the lower cost of borrowing to invest. Um, and we save money on the cost of uh, not having to create and regulate artificial markets where they don't actually belong. So we save money in all of those ways. Um, and that money can be uh, returned to the government, ploughed back into the service. Uh, so we've got an asset in our hands. Mm. Of course, there's a question of compensation for shareholders. If you look at the water companies, for example, and, you, and if you look at what they've done over the past 30 years, they've increased our bills by 40%, they've polluted our rivers, they've dodged tax, they've built up a debt mountain, and, and they've basically, you know, relied on the fact that they've got a monopoly service that people have no choice but to use. Um, and they've, they've extracted as much value as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. So we're arguing that actually we should just take back those assets and not mm. compensate them because, if anything, they should be compensating us. Yeah. And I mean, I'm on board with all that. Can we afford it? So a, qu a question that I have is, so last uh, year the right-wing think tank, the Centre for Policy Studies, published a report that said it would cost £6,500 per household to do this is that right? Yeah, so they like to scare us with these mm -hmm, figures. Mm -hmm. Parliament gets to decide what is appropriate. Mm. So it's entirely up to Parliament to say, you know, here's how much compensation we're giving you. Mm -hmm. Will they fight back? Yes, they will. But actually, even if we end up having to compensate the shareholders something, it shouldn't be full market value because that is based on their extractive model, right, where they're ripping us off yeah. all the time. So why do they deserve that? If you look at the the actual the value of the of the shares in terms of the actual money that was exchanged at the time of buying them, that's less. And then you if you if you then remove you know some of that value on the basis that they've been ripping us off in so all these ways, yeah. then actually you bring the price down quite considerably. So uh, Hillary, this is a question for you. 
If we look at why public ownership is popular, it seems that people want two main things. So they want more accountability and better services for the money. So let's take the first one, accountability. Hilary, how do you think that public ownership in the future would be more accountable to the public than what we've got now or the nationalisations that we had in the past? Well, in several ways, and this would require reform in, in how public services have been managed and reform probably of Parliament. So the first thing would be transparency. So, you know, I think the budgets, the, the um, what's, how, what's spent, how much is spent, where the money goes, all that should be completely open. So people can, you know, call these institutions to account. They can, I don't know, let's suppose they um, they want to know how much money is spent on like regional railways, for example, compared to uh, the, the simply the railways that go to and from London. What about the, mm. the Trans Pennine? You know all those, and they could say let's say they're they're saying as it's happening now. You know those trans trans country trains are just massively overcrowded and inefficient and in terms of public need mm-hmm. um, they'd be able to say look you know they're not there's not enough investment in them they could not just make that as a sort of general complaint but they could actually show in the accounts look you know you can see this and people will be able to argue and 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 build up the, the basis of accountability and then I think there'd need to be um, a much more direct relationship between the public industries and parliament so that people would know who to complain to at the moment you know you you really don't know who to complain to there's all this customer services stuff but mm-hmm. you know you never get anywhere whereas if you're complaining to an mp that depends on your votes yeah um or or, or a local authority i mean i think that we need to think about how to decentralize some of the management of these companies. And then mm-hmm. finally, I think that there should be ways in which users can be can have rights. So, you know, let's take the notorious um, railway sandwich, you know, the whole kind of food on, on railways. It shouldn't be just a matter of, you know, you can make a complaint or something. But there should actually, it should be clear how that food side of the of the railways is managed who's on those boards and and passengers should be able to be on those boards there should be like assemblies discussions so you know you know yeah i mean do people people want that is what i'm wondering because i feel like i'm definitely on board with and have heard a lot about you know um participatory budgeting and all these Mm. kind of things and i guess my fear with Mm. that would be that people weren't actually that up for being involved yeah, there is that. There is a problem. In a, in a sense, some of these are precisely the critiques of the new right that the public sector is very kind of distant. It's far away. It's unaccountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the new right did try to address that. And so the whole choice agenda, which new public management came up with or was associated with, was to try and allow for the users of public services to have more of a choice, more of a direct say. And so we have to be almost slightly careful around how difficult this um, process of trying to actually democratize management um, isn't just about empowering users because then it becomes a story of kind of consumer power, mm. um, which is very much what the, th- the Thatcherite remaking of the public sector was all about. Um, and it speaks to the difficulty that I think we, 
We can very easily think that ownership is the solution. So the problem is we have private companies and if only they're owned democratically, and that's the spread of ownership in the public sector or the cooperative sector, then somehow management gets sorted out automatically as part of that. Um, but if we look at something like the NHS, it's, an, it's enormously, um, for the people who work in it, it feels a very managerial system. Mm. Um, I know from my uh, midwife and nurse and doctor friends, they're very confronted by this constant demand for accountability, which gets in the way of them doing their job. So it might be about trying to empower the workers of these organizations to design their own ways in which they're going to be accountable. Mm. Um, but that that isn't the same thing as just asking consumers to to kind of decide what's best for them. Hillary, did you want to come? No, I agree. I, yes, I agree with that. I mean, I I tend to, to emphasize more worker involvement, but I was just trying to bend my own mm. stick, mm. you know, in the other direction and and take consumer involvement seriously. But I mean, I think that the key thing is that it's not so much about choice. I mean, we know that this choice has been completely, you know, absurd. You know, you just want the best way to get from from London to Sheffield. You don't want to have to choose between, you know, it gets, it gets incredibly bureaucratic and muddly with tickets and those, choosing mm. between different companies. And so it's a false choice, but also democracy and arriving at, at solutions that are an improvement requires deliberation. I mean, there's that wonderful quote from Milton about how where there is argument, where there is many opinions, there there is the search for knowledge, there is knowledge in the making. Well, that's, you know, he's making great arguments about the press, but actually it applies to any process where we're trying to draw on the knowledge and experience and skills and often tacit knowledge of capacities of all those affected. Yeah, so so perhaps, yeah, maybe what I'm hearing is if that we, if we put the same amount of energy behind designing systems and infrastructures that embedded accountability and democracy and participation mm. that we do around management then it might we might actually start to get to the heart of what this might look like effectively in practice you know ownership isn't a panacea like we need to get the management right but actually i do think i think it's really important that citizens are part of that and it is about citizen power not not consumer power mm. so mm. that might mean for example that we have some kind of citizen assembly style meeting every you know, five years where the public gets together and they say, you know, this is what we want from our railway or this is what we want from our, our water company. And then it's the job of the staff to go away and deliver that. Um, but then there are ongoing processes. So, you know, in, in Paris, for example, they have monthly meetings that are open to the public. All of their information is transparent. They have an observatoire, which is a kind of extra citizen body, which is keeping an eye on what the company's doing. Um, and they've delivered some amazing things in terms of reducing bills, making water accessible, introducing water fountains around the city. I think anyone hearing this will be like, how are we going to have like huge public meetings on? But, you know, we, the government just did this big consultation on the Gender Recognition Act and various things. There are lots of ways now with the development of technology that this kind of consultation work can be done if the energy is put into thinking about ha how, you know. Definitely. And if, you know, if you only have to feed into how your services get provided once every few years, mm. I think lots of people might be interested in doing that if their opinion can really be taken into account in a useful way. Yeah, so the second thing that the public 
wants from public ownership is a combination of lower costs, more investment and, and generally better services. Mm-hmm. So we've heard uh, earlier you talked about this idea of new public management, which seems to have been ineffective and probably insufficient in terms of achieving some of the things we're talking about here. So if we do want these services to be well run, what would need to be different? I wish I could give you the exact management model um, (laughs) that it could be. In a way, I think it's reflective of the fact that we talk a lot about um, kind of new uh, economic ideas and new models of economy. Um, and new economic knowledge and alternative forms of economic knowledge. And there is very little reflection on management as an expertise that needs left attention. Yeah. Um, and so we actually it's, do it lack... It feels a bit neoliberal, doesn't it? I feel yeah. like people step away because that whole realm still feels like it's owned by exactly. the neoliberal. There's, there's a kind of, we want to shy away from the idea that things need to be managed and, people, and we need forms of accountability. Often it gets cast as if only we could return to a period where kind of Teachers had autonomy or university lecturers Mm. had autonomy or doctors and nurses had autonomy. Um, But again, with autonomy, that that was, you know, it it privileged certain types of people who were able to kind of go around totally unaccountable um, and other people were marginalized from that. So we do need forms of accountability, Mm. but that needs to be developed. And that is a kind of an expertise that we need to pay attention to. Often we don't. Often we it's kind of a classic kind of after the revolution thing. We'll sort out ownership, we'll nationalise things, and then we'll work out how to manage it um, democratically. And I'm not mm. sure that we've got the kind of techniques in place to do that as yet. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We're just doing some thinking on that at the moment at We Own It because it feels to me like there are, there's so much knowledge out there about you know how effective organisations can be run and we should take it from everywhere. You know, we should take it from the private sector. We should take it from business books. We should take it from the public sector, and from you know, and from co-ops and social mm. enterprise, and you know, and and put all of that together and work out how to make our public services the best thing mm. that we've ever seen. But as you say, all of these things are so ideological, right? And and so kind of like it's it's like management to what end? And so if we're starting from a different kind of starting point in terms of the outcomes that we want to see, then. Yeah, of course we need a new model of management because we're trying to manage different things to different ends. Definitely, like the a few years ago, the um, teachers union was trying to develop a or was had developed an alternative form of Ofsted, which is much more kind of peer led assessment and not with not with the kind of threat of castigation at the end of it. Mm. Um, so that kinds of things where unions are beginning to say, not only are we going to mobilise around pay and condition, but also we can mobilise and think about how we want. Um, to judge ourselves and how yeah, we want to evaluate ourselves. And, yeah, um, and yeah. that's a really important step to take. Mm. Okay, so what I want to do now uh, really quickly is talk about what we might learn from abroad. So Hilary, I want to start with you, but others feel free to chip in. Which countries, um, other countries other than France, which has come up, um, are having the most success with this kind of model? Mm, that's, a, that's a question I ask myself. I mean, the country where public ownership has been most efficient in sort of economic terms, i.e. providing well-run public utilities that have benefited society beyond, beyond that particular utility, is, is actually Uruguay, where they've brought into public ownership all the sort of infrastructural, you know, telecoms, energy, water, you know, it's in the constitution that these things should be public. And then... What's happened there is that's important is that they've they've had a strategy across these industries. So the telecom companies very linked into the education system, providing facilities for 
uh, all the different levels of the education system. So there, there's a there's a good form of sort of national management, but they haven't yet really been thinking about the democratic control side of things. I think otherwise, then we have to look at sort of micro cases like like Kat's example from Paris. There, I'm just not. I think Sweden. I think there's some interesting examples around around childcare particularly in Sweden. The, the Transnational Institute has obviously done a lot of, the, of this, hasn't it, Hilary, in terms of you yeah. know, the studies on all the cities bringing water and energy into public ownership mm-hmm. around the world, which is quite inspiring to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's more, but they've done, or we've done more about that inspiring fact that across the world, the, the trend, I mean, it relates to the, your opening, Aisha, mm-hmm. you know, that across the world, countries are bringing... Um, services back into public ownership Mm. but we've now got to do that research on so how is it being managed what are the improvements what are the lessons being learned so that's the sort of next stage Mm. but it's a crucial stage yeah I mean often I think when we uh kind of the the journey of the weekly economics podcast is we come on and we say (laughs) what's the problem and then we have lots of experts be like it's all of these things and it's bigger than you ever thought and then we're like oh okay um, that's sad. Whereas this is what Mef has to then do the work. Yeah, and then we have a heavy edit. But like, I think I think on this Valentine's Day special, it does kind of feel like what we're saying is like these things are not completely out of reach. They're not completely irreformable, or you know, um, but it's just that thing around you know when the moment comes, are we going to be you know are we going to be ready with our with our kind of ideas and our reports and our frameworks and our infrastructure to pass to the relevant people to be like try this um, or not is the question. One thing I would say is that it's, it's, we shouldn't um, do, be too hard on ourselves. A lot mm. of like the techniques of management that say we now kind of live under have a 35-year history. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. These things have been trialed and errored and have gone through different governments, and different and iterations, and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, constantly failing, mm. and failing forward. Mm. Um, so I don't think we can expect to just have this kind of perfect model ready to go. Mm. Um, but it is something that requires sustained attention. Um, and it might be that there are bigger kind of progressive outcomes that come from this kind of infrastructure building. Mm. I think also we need to pay attention to experiments that have been done under our very eyes. I mean, we've got to look to our own citizens. Yeah, to see what's, what, what's already happening as well as, yeah, what more yeah. we could do. Yeah. Um, Kat, um, I'm going to offer you the final final thought. Yeah, and, and while we can keep improving public ownership, I think we should also be really happy about the fact that we've got publicly owned organisations already doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Even here in the UK, we've got the NHS, of course, but we've also got Scottish Water. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, the East Coast Line now. Mm-hmm. We've got nine municipal bus companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got the Met Office, the Land Registry, Ordnance Survey, Royal Mint, Channel 4. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yes, let's make them more democratic and accountable and, and innovative. But actually, a lot of those organisations are doing a fantastic job already. Mm-hmm. Okay, a lovely note to end on. So uh, what we usually ask um, our guests at the end is if people want to hear more from you or about the work that you're doing, how can they do that? So let's start with uh, you, Hilary Wainwright. Where can people hear more about you or your work? Well, they could go to the website of Red Pepper, the magazine that I co-edit, which is redpepper, all one word, dot org, dot UK. Mm-hmm. Or they can go to um, the TNI website, tni.org. Uh, 
Okay, great. Uh, Kat Hobbs, where can people hear more? Um, please do sign up at weownit.org.uk. Uh, we're trying to think about these questions about models of public ownership, um, how we can make it so wildly successful it can never be dismantled. Mm-hmm. And we're also trying to win campaigns against privatisation and for public ownership. So it's weownit.org.uk. Wonderful, thank you. And Sarhill, people want to find you in the in the hallways of Goldsmiths. <laughs> so I could plug, come to Goldsmiths and study with us. Um, <laughs> or you can find me on Twitter at uh-huh. Sarhill Dutta. Lovely. Okay, so that's it for this week, lovely listener. A massive thanks to all my guests, of course, Hilary Wainwright, Sahil Dutta and Kat Hobbs. Thank you so much for joining me. If you have enjoyed this episode, as always, please tell someone about it or you can drop us a line with your questions and comments. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter and we might even read them out. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield with help this week from Clifford Singer and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>